This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's a story, but that's why I'm here to tell you stories. Out there somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong. Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. <laughs> and the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Huh. Nobody makes up anything. The time has come to go out of your mind. Are you ready? There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind. In living color on WTDR. Wow. I mean, some of the scenes you will witness may appear to border on fantasy. Look, yes. There's the images. Everybody quiet. Just listen. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I said God. It's all remote control. Each one of those images was electronically based. I can't remember when I've been so moved. How do you like that? Why, preposterous. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your storyteller. I'm happy to be here with you, and I'd like you to join me. I realize what I'm about to say comes as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individual. Complete individual. Against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything, and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. And good luck.
so much. I'm really grateful that you were up for doing this. Yeah, well, I'm always interested in checking out what you write and what you're doing. Thanks. Because I still well remember Savage Park. Yeah. I love that. that. Yeah, I think that was seven years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I love that book. Thank you. And that is still one of my favorite interviews. Oh, so let me introduce you, and then we'll, we'll get into all of this. Okay. Amy Fusselman is the author of numerous books, as well as articles and essays that have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Art News, Artnet, and many other places. She teaches creative writing at NYU, and Amy has been a guest on the show twice before to talk about her previous books. Savage Park and Idiophone. And her new book and first novel that we'll be talking about today is Means, a kind of capitalist satire about a wealthy stay at home mom who is finally about to get her dream beach house when things start to go awry. So, Amy, welcome. Thanks, Tony. I'm really so excited to be here. So, First off, how long have you been teaching creative writing at NYU? Not long. Probably I'm going into my third year, I think. Yeah, because I didn't remember that from uh, previous conversations. Yeah, yeah, that was that's something new that happened. Yeah, I was wondering what inspired you to uh, write a novel. Well, I mean, I had been working on writing something. I wanted to try writing something 
that was more humorous. I wanted to try straightforward humor. And um, I was noodling around on something when Idiophone like emerged. And it, it did kind of just emerge. And um, after Idiophone was done, I felt that I had taken kind of a baby step in fiction. I mean, super baby step with the characters of these little sort of mice driving around the landscape in cars. And so when I returned to this humor project, I decided I was going to try to write fiction, which wasn't really something I had been considering before. So what inspired the desire to write something humorous? And what were your inspirations? Do you read humorous or satirical fiction? Where where did this come from? Yeah, I love humor. And I do think of myself as a fairly consistent, like humor consumer. You know, I'm interested in humor writing and performance and wherever, whatever kind of form, because stand-up comedy isn't, you know, always how it presents itself, although I love stand-up as well. And so, I mean, I have been sort of digesting humor for a while, and I just decided, because I, like, just in the process of writing, when I start to write what I think is funny, there's so much joy in it, you know? I just get a lot of joy out of writing humor. And um, I felt like readers were also, like I was starting to write these pieces for the Washington Post that were more overtly funny. And um, as a writer there and also a reader there, I found the work of Alexandra Petri, who's like an absolute genius in my opinion. She's a columnist at the Washington Post. And it just became you know, something that I decided that I was going to try to tackle, but I wasn't sure. It was like one of those things that's sort of on the back burner. Like, I know I want to do this. I mean, how, when, how is it going to emerge? Like, I just was sort of stirring it. I've been stirring this pot for a while. I'll put it that way. Tell me a little bit about what she writes about, and then talk about some of what you've written, you know, some of your humorous or satirical articles that you've done. Mm -hmm. When you say she, you mean Alexandra. Yeah. Alexandra Petri is a, and I believe I'm saying that correctly, although it's not the instinctive way to pronounce her last name, which is spelled like Petri dishes, like P-E-T-R-I. She writes a column for the Washington Post that basically got me through the Trump era, where she, I think she, her pace, like in terms of her output is ridiculous. Like she just is constantly writing and she would take sort of the latest, you know, show and just create something really beautiful and satirical about it, seemingly on a dime, like she can just turn it around on a dime. And I just found her work so, you know, it was such a bomb, you know, her work is such a bomb to me. And I feel that way about humor in general. Like when people are writing humor, the kind of humor I like is it's like, heart soothing you know it's like oh my god what a relief somebody is going there you know somebody is going to hold up a mirror to this like horrible fucking situation i'm so grateful you know i mean i just i feel gratitude whenever people do that i mean it's it's really powerful work for me that's how i have re- i'm and i think i've only become more that way over the years like as i've gotten older and the stuff that i've written for the post i mean it just became sort of a place where I decided I was going to try to write things that were more funny. And uh, I wrote this one column about 
discovering that the Scrabble opponent that I was playing was in fact a robot. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was really funny to both to live through and then to write about. And I found like people were so really responsive to that column. Like they were like, "Oh my god!" Like you're, it it just was really sort of hit a nerve and. You know, I mean, my work has been kind of experimental. It's been, I've plumbed a lot of different territory, but I feel like humor is just a way that I've been able to connect with readers in a way that feels really joyful for me and that I wanted to explore more in what I was going to do next. Well, I'm a huge fan of humor. I've always loved humor. Growing up, I loved satirical novels. The two main ones that come to mind you know, over the top ones were Philip Roth's The Great American Novel mm. and, and of course, uh, Joseph Heller's Catch-22. Mm, yeah. And in reading your book, I was thinking about Catch-22 and seeing your story as, as almost like a sort of reverse Catch-22. Hmm. In the way that your protagonist and her husband were kind of single-handedly supporting the local capitalist system without actually having any income of their own, <laughs> which made me think of our American capitalist system, which is essentially like this grand shell game. Right. Yeah. That's a great image because essentially, I mean, that was what was really satisfying in landing on an ending for this piece. Like, you know, and I don't think this is a spoiler, it's just to say that Shelley you know, what happens is that she gets a proper job, like she gets a quote, real job. And essentially, like the system that she's been trying to outsmart, like ends up eating her, like she's cannibalized by her own, um, you know, by the thing that she's trying to game. So yeah, I think that's a good image. You've gotten to, <laughs> you've, you've accurately um, put your finger on like the major themes of the piece. And also, I loved the wordplay jokes, which you thread throughout the novel. Well, that's an acquired taste and some people dislike word games, but I'm a, I'm a sucker, so I'm glad to hear that. I love that kind of cheeky stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cheeky is right. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cheeky, but but it's fun. It's yeah. play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I love that. And I don't get to read much fiction. I hardly get to read any fiction at all with my show because I'm mainly doing nonfiction interviews. But right. I remember back before I was doing the show, I pretty much only read fiction. Hmm. And I particularly thrived on authors who would play with things like magical realism, satire, humor. Mm -hmm. And wordplay is part of the. I just naturally do a lot of free association in my own mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a joy. I mean, I just got through a like a six hour drive where I took my son to college and we listened to rap like the entire way. And so I, I've been thinking a lot about just that, you know, the joy of like wordplay and rap and rhyming and, you know, either you're some, I mean, you could be a rap fan and not like wordplay, I guess, but I just found like, you know, some of the, some of the stuff we listened to was just completely amazing. It made me, it made me remember again, like why it's just so fun, you know? Yeah. I, I love that you brought in rap because rap, in a way, seems so out of character with everything that we've ever talked about. Mm, you and I, yeah, right. Yeah. From Savage and, Park, yeah, for this, yeah. 
and also rap came a little later in our lives, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do love some rap. And when you encounter great rap, it's like great writing. It's like great wordplay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It, so what was it about this particular story? You know, your protagonist lives in New York City in Manhattan. You live in New York City in Manhattan. Yeah. How much could you relate to her story? And what elements? Yeah. Well, Shelley Means, who's my main character and I are similar in, in some respects. Like, yes, we are. We both live in Manhattan. She has two kids. I have three. We both have shipping container beach houses in the Hamptons. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> and I, one thing that was happening was when I was sort of deciding how I wanted to write this humor piece and I decided I wanted to write about money and my husband and I, Frank and I were in the process of building this house and it was really, you know, basically a straightforward, non-dramatic event. But I realized that there was so much that could be riffed on, that could be packed if it were seen through a different lens, it would be really ripe. So I chose this setting and this the setting, this beach house made out of shipping containers in the Hamptons and decided that that was going to be like, you know, my Valhalla, like my, (laughs) the pinnacle, like the thing that all this striving was going to be headed towards. And there was something already about that, you know, that it would be kind of down market, which appealed to me and made it seem like it would be really fun to play with. So I've, of course, seen pictures of shipping container houses and when I first heard about them, I thought that's a brilliant idea Mm. to make very inexpensive housing. Well, that was part of the, you know, for our like personal desire, that was part of the appeal. You know, we were looking at prefab. I mean, I have, you know, back to, you know, my Savage Park days, like architecture, building, like structure, any, you know, I love junk, garbage, like (laughs) a lot of those themes are still present in this piece. Like building out of garbage is thrilling to me and always has been. So this project is kind of, it's like Savage Park, like turned on its head, maybe you can say. Yeah, it's like a Savage Park for for the rest of the world, (laughs) for adults. Yeah, right. For aspiring, desirous adults. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's what it is. I haven't strayed from my themes. Yeah, I've had lots of fantasies in that realm myself. Hmm. There's a lot of wonderful characters and inner dynamics in the novel, but I thought I would have you start from page one. Could you read the opening? Oh, sure. That gives us a sense of where Shelley's coming from. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Must-haves. Japanese toilet, four beds, three baths, heated pool, heated floors, garage. At last, I'm going to get a beach house. Steps I have taken to get to this moment of beach house ownership. Born, childhood, college, married, George, 
George made dollars. George and I bought Lake House. A raccoon wedged its beefy body through a hole that we didn't know existed in the Lake House chimney guard. He fell down the chimney into the house when we weren't there and then spent a week drinking out of the toilet, jumping on the beds and smearing soot on every surface. He was like a coin that dropped into the slot machine of our lake house, causing a riot of spinning fruits and ringing bells. I love that opening. <laughs> and I can relate to the raccoon because several years ago, I house sat for some friends for the whole winter and I shut my house down. And when I came back in the spring, I discovered that raccoons had actually moved into my attic. And they did it by burrowing a hole in the roof where I have an exhaust fan coming out of. And I was just totally beside myself trying to figure out how I was going to deal with this. Raccoons are the best. I love, <laughs> I love raccoons. You can't talk about garbage without talking about raccoons. They're just, they're the best. Yeah, I think we could learn a lot. Well, people like you and I could learn a lot from them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so how did you resolve it? I have to know. Did you have to get the raccoon, like the animal control people? or? Well, it's interesting. I lived with them. I'm, I'm not sure how long it lasted. It might have been like a month. And I was in despair. You know, I went online. I looked, I read everything I could find to figure out how to do it. I didn't want, you know, a major extermination intervention because I knew that would be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. So what I started doing was I started talking to them oh. because they would be making noise up there and scurrying around. It was just in this small area directly above my bathroom. And I would talk to them and I would have different kinds of conversations. Sometimes I would be really pissed off at them and I would yell at them and curse at them. And then after a while I started saying, well, could you please leave? Because I'm getting to the point where I'm gonna do something really radical and I'll probably end up killing you guys. So could you please just leave before I, I become murderous? Oh my God. And they actually left. They were your roommates, Tonio. They were your raccoon roommates. But I think what it was was that they had babies up yeah. there. And that once the babies were old enough that they could get around on their own, and also was springtime, right? approaching summer, and they just left. It probably didn't matter that I was talking to them. I think they would have done that anyway. You were like the raccoon maternity ward. That's it. Uh, you were, you, good job. <laughs> well, I wasn't living there, so I guess it's fair game. <laughs> I like that you did that. I also did that with mice several years ago. I let them live in my house as long as they didn't sh in my living area, like in my kitchen or, or anywhere else. And we actually coexisted for about two or three years. Oh my that, God. With that agreement, you know, I would talk to them. I would say, listen, if you don't fuck with me, I won't fuck with you. And I did an interview with a vet out in Colorado and, and she was like, wow, oh my God. I can't believe you did that. Yeah, where's that book? Where's the, I lived with the mice for two years and they didn't, they listened to me and didn't poop where I told them not to. 
Where's that nonfiction book? That's amazing. <laughs> well, the thing is, I don't have the discipline to write. So <laughs> I don't see how I could pull that off. Oh, Unless... I'm telling you, the Notes app, you just you just talk into it a few minutes a day. I'm telling you, Tonio, the world needs this book. That's amazing. Well, I have other ideas, too. Tell me a little bit about Notes app. Oh, how, wait, how... it's not Notes app. It's Voice Memo. Sorry. Do you have an iPhone? Do you have no. A... Oh, Jesus, good for you. All right, well, then, whatever. <laughs> just a little recorder. Just any kind of, because, I mean, I'm guessing, I'm making an assumption here that Although you're saying that you don't have the discipline to write, you clearly have the discipline to speak. So if you well, would actually, you know, I actually do it all in my head. And then I, you, you <laughs> and then I, I don't do anything with that generally, unless I'm with someone and it comes out my mouth. There you go. <laughs> there you so go. That, would, that would take a huge shift in my lifestyle to actually speak out loud and actually I've thought about doing that for years, but I just never got around to doing it. Tonio, you got to do it. Promise me. Next time, next time <laughs> we get together, next book, you will have completed your mouse whispering book. Well, I don't know if it'll be the mouse whispering because I really don't think that was that interesting. But just in case you're right, I won't give any spoilers about what ended up happening. Okay. Yeah. Because we're going to buy it. in our <laughs> Yes. Okay, so anyway, getting back to your book. <laughs> so in the middle of this satirical shakedown of our capitalist system, you have some interesting characters. They all have these quirky characteristics. You have a, uh, a very stylish black architect who's always wearing these flashy things. And was she bald? Yeah, I, I she has, yeah, she her head is shaved. Yeah, she's gorgeous. So she's very striking. Yeah. And then Shelly has this therapist who also doubles as her real estate agent. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and that made me think about how a lot of people in New York, you know, who are scrambling to to make it financially are pretty much, you know, doing everything they can. It's just this full-time hustling, mm -hmm. you know, gig just to survive. Yeah. And then Shelley has a dog walker, a student at FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. My stepmother went there. And this dog, I got a kick out of that. This dog named Twix, she's named after a real candy bar. And Darby, who's this student hired dog walker, eats these candy bars with names like caring bars and vulnerability bars, which I'm assuming are totally fictional. Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't seen them, but they seem like they could exist. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they exist in your book. So that, <laughs> yeah. that yeah. makes them real enough. There you go. So this dog, tell us about this dog, because I love the way this dog is actually like the only sober voice of sanity in the whole story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Twix is, um, I could talk a lot about dog owners and, you know, the projections that happen onto their dog. I, I am a dog owner. And so here, I will tell you the backstory about Twix in the book, which is that originally in the manuscript, her name was Snickers. For a long time, her name was Snickers. And I was going over the manuscript with a comedian whose work I adore, John Hodgman. 
and he was giving me some feedback and Twix, who is my own dog, like sat in my lap and I introduced Twix to John and he was like, Amy, like, what are you doing? Twix is so much better than Snickers. I was like, why? And he was like, well, Snickers is like too on the nose. You have, you should change it to Twix. And I was like, okay, so that's how Twix became Twix in the book. So he thought that Snickers was too on the nose because I, yeah. I like Snickers for, yeah. for a dog. You know, John Hodgman has been on Trevor Noah. Like I figured I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to take the advice of like the comments right. in that free advice. Yeah. From, never turned down. Yeah. He, yeah. So anyway, but my my actual real life dog is named Twix, but Twix does not talk to me. Alas, although, you know, but anyway, I had a lot of fun with making the dog in the book, the moral center of the book. And um, I mean, if you have a dog, you know, like how amazing they are. But yeah, Twix is really, what do I want to say? She's free. You know, she's, <laughs> that's the right word. She's, she's free in her judgment and her statements and her assessments and her, you know, and yeah, so she just, you know, lays it out for Shelly, who naturally just ignores her, basically. And continues, you know, doing what she's doing. So, but I, I do feel, I mean, the human animal bond, as you, a mouse whisperer would know, is complex. And yeah, it was really a lot of fun to bring Twix into the book. And also dogs in New York City is a whole nother thing. Cause when I was still in school, pre-high school, whatever that's called. <laughs> <laughs> Middle school. Middle school. Yes. Hey elementary and middle school, my stepmother bought a Samoyed on my birthday. But the dog was not for me. It was for her. But uh, (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) Right. You found it. Yeah. It's what a complex gift that was, huh? Yeah. But we lived together long enough so that there wasn't any major separation Mm. anxiety when when we, we split apart. But it was interesting because we would take this gorgeous dog out to walk on the street in the city. And in our neighborhood, we were living on East Broadway at the time. And I only heard this through the grapevine. But one day, my father was walking the dog. And this guy dressed up, you know, in pinstripe suit with a couple of bodyguards behind him is being pulled, you know, dragged down the street by this other Samoyed puppy and apparently he had seen my father with with our dog before and he he actually came up to my father one time and said hey hey i want you to take my dog oh my god i can't deal with this dog i can't take proper care with him you take him so this guy was a real gangster and uh he gave us his dog so then we had two snoyets in the city oh my god that's an that's an incredible dog acquisition story. Yeah, and fortunately, we shortly after that we moved up here to Vermont, so the dogs had had a real life rather than being stuck in an apartment. And that first dog was a wonderful, sweet, sweet dog. But we would leave him during the day, and every single day, whether to get back at us or just because of separation anxiety, he would chew our couched to shreds Aww, yeah. <laughs> every single day and then every day we'd come back home and we would 
we'd yell at him, bad dog. And he would, he would hide underneath the couch while we put all the stuffing back together again and cover it up so that the next day he could tear it apart again. Oh so, my God. Yeah. So it was a good thing that we moved out of New York city. Yeah. It's stressful for humans and dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much politics and etiquette about dogs in the city that, that just make things complicated. <laughs> yes. A lot of interhuman, intradog, like proxy wars. Yeah. And actual dog wars. For example, our first Samoyed, who is this very gentle, very sweet, never hurt a fly, was attacked by a Doberman pincher in the park one day. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But the upshot of that is that our sweet little Samoyed killed the Doberman pincher instantly. Oh, my God. I know. it. We were just thunderstruck, but he wasn't hurt at all. Did the pincher's owners, like, sue you? Like, what happened? Well, it was very clear that this woman's Doberman pincher attacked our dog. So, Wow. You have good animal stories. Yeah. And also, my stepmother is one tough cookie. Wow. So anyway, getting back to the book. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that we're having all these animal asides. And I welcome any other asides and any other stories from you as well. Please bring bring them on. Bring them on. Oh, well, it's funny because I'm reading Susan or I'm rereading Susan Orleans on animals right now. And it's like, yeah, the, the human animal world is is rich. That's a great book. You would love that book. And it's just a book of essays about animals called On Animals. It's a compendium of her essays, and they're just delightful. That sounds great. So meanwhile, back at the novel. Back at the novel, yeah. So there's another wonderful character, Shelley's high school son's girlfriend, Betty. Oh, yeah, Betty. She's just like a bundle of joyous contradictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was fun because the locale of the novel is, quote, real in the sense that, you know, this is a fictional, like, part of a real place, the Hamptons. And, you know, Shelley lives in a real area of New York City near FIT. But I had a lot of fun populating this story with these characters. And Betty is, she's fashion forward and she's sort of always wearing kind of haute couture that riffs on garbage. Like, you know, she wears a lot of like plastic bags that are like thousands of dollars. And actually, I was thinking about her because my son, who I just took to college again, like is a big fan of Kanye and Kanye just did a collab with The Gap where in New York City, where we are, we had one of the stores that had the collab merchandise available. And, you know, one of the hallmarks of The Gap is that you walk in The Gap and like every single shirt is like folded to within an inch of its life on those little stacks on those nine million shelves. And What Kanye did was presented his merchandise just in these giant, like, cloth bags. You know, you had to tear through them like you were, you know, at the Salvation Army. And that was just, like, part of the thing. It was sort of presented. I mean, he got some backlash for saying that one of his inspirations, you know, were homeless people. 
And, you know, he got some pushback for that. But it was just like, I was thinking that Betty would admire that collab, you know, that she she represented like where garbage goes when it's high end in terms of her fashion. And then also in terms of the way that she speaks to Shelly about how Shelly is, you know, basically behaving idiotically in, in many respects. So because my characters sadly, you know, have that human foible where they think they know what they're doing and they don't listen to other people. <laughs> so there's, so there are a lot of people are talking to each other and not a lot of people are listening, which I have seen, I don't know about you, but that seems to be a human trait. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be one of the enduring perennial human traits. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, during all this, Betty's writing this book titled The Ethical Guide to Becoming a Gazillionaire. Mm, yeah, she's which, an aspiring writer, yes. Which I, I love that title. Yes. It directly reflects on the subject of the book, the underlying subject of the book. Right. Which is like, is it really possible? You know, I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, Betty's Betty's working on it, but um, is it possible? I'm not sure. You know, that's one of the questions the book asks, I think. But I'm assuming she's also in high school. Yeah, she's in high school. Yes. So the young have license to dream and come up with all sorts of crazy ideas. And hopefully they'll come up with ideas crazy enough to actually maybe even save the world. Exactly, yes. That we've completely and utterly f***ed up. The children are our future, yes. <laughs> yes. And so, of course, they have to play around with all kinds of screwy ideas before they hit upon, you know, you have to, you have to make tons of mistakes on your way to actually discovering something that works. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And another thing about this is, you know, satirizing the life of upper middle class New Yorkers. Yeah, that was fun. I don't know. It's, I mean, the thing about Shelley that I find, one of the problems that I had in starting the writing was like, how can you make an ostensibly wealthy person? Like, why is anybody in 2022, you know, when the world's on fire, why is anybody going to want to read about like rich people problems? Like what, you know, what could possibly be the value in having a protagonist like this? So I tried to, the thing that I love about Shelley is that, you know, she is someone I think that is relatable and that she just is like hell bent on getting this thing that she thinks is going to you know, sort of solve everything. And I think it's a common fantasy for women. Like, I mean, this is a terrible statement in some ways, but like real estate is like the sports pages in a way, you know, like it's a kind of, you know, who has what, let me fantasize about this type of X, Y, Z, you know? And so it's a fantasy that she's really put her heart into in terms of like, if she just has this, you know, all the stress, all the other stuff in her life is going to like melt away because she's going to be able to escape to this landscape. And I mean, I think one of the larger questions of the book is like, why, why have we made housing, you know, so 
insane. <laughs> like, why has, I mean, of all, we've made everything insane, but why housing in particular has it become like this unbelievable tournament? It's it's so ripe for satire. It's It's insane. I just found it to be like really rich territory. And yet also so, um, I mean, it's a tender spot. Like everybody wants a home. Everybody just needs a home, deserves a home. Like shelter is, you know, Maslow's base of the hierarchy. But like it's become this huge challenge. And I decided that it was that dream of Shelley's that was going to be able to make this more than just like, you know, rich people problems. It still is rich people problems, but I like to think that it's got a wider concern. Mm -hmm. And I get your allusion to real estate being like reading the sports pages, you know, fantasizing about either the next level above what we're capable of or the sky's the limit kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, house porn and, you know... Why is it that everyone's life seems so perfect in those images? I mean, yeah, you know, it's very seductive. If just the setting is right, you know, it's kind of another like very human foible. If I'm just in the right hotel room, my vacation will be perfect, you know? It's actually not furniture that makes your vacation. You know, you know that, we know that, and yet, and yet. And there's this great line in the book about how Shelley just wants to lie around and feel fully alive. Or maybe I put those two things together. No, no, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. You just want to sort of assume the most dead posture, you know, <laughs> to be like in a lawn chair with your cool drink at your side, you know, in front of your pool, and like half asleep, you know, dead to the world. And then you're fully alive. Yes. Yes. And she's also, in addition to the beach house, which, well, Let's go a little further into the beach house. They purchased this piece of land. Her therapist, who doubles as her real estate agent, tells Shelley about this perfect piece of land that has just become available that's within her budget. And it turns out to be this kind of tiny little triangle of land that, <laughs> that's just totally infested with ticks. <laughs> Yeah, which is, that's true for all of the Hamptons, though, which is, you know, that's like, doesn't like get so played up by the influencers. Yeah, but it's like Deer Tick Festival, like the entire Hamptons is like Deer Tick Freak Out for sure. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I didn't remember that because when I was young, living in the city, my best friend's father lived in East Hampton. Mm. So we went out there a few times. But I don't I don't remember ticks. But I guess when you're a kid, you don't you don't pay attention to things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lady who goes back into the city every fall and gets like their family gets blood tests to make sure there's no Lyme. I mean, Lyme is serious. Yeah. And maybe the ticks hadn't moved into the neighborhood by then. <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe they were still, you know, trying to find the right deer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's jump to. Uh, Shelley's obsession with this Japanese toilet. <laughs> yes, yes. See, it all comes back to Savage Park. Yes, the Japanese toilet. Yeah. Um, well, because, I mean, again, like, comedy is, you know, the poop joke is, like, a staple, an important element of comedy. And I felt that because I was going to go there, so to speak, with writing about 
you know, dog ownership and dog poop and how dog poop has its own, you know, strata of behavior written around it. I wanted there to be sort of a mirror element, a human element, and that led me to the Japanese toilet, which is... Japanese toilets are just, are like fetish objects. I think that they're just astonishing and amazing that you have all these buttons. When I went to Japan and discovered the remote for the toilet, it was like, you know, who doesn't delight in that? I don't know. You can't be human if you're not enthralled at picking like your different music and like having this, like your butt spray and like the whole thing is just enchanting. Yes. Just another reason why Japan is better. <laughs> I'm a, just another reason why I'm a Japanophile, I should say. Japan is amazing. It's way beyond humor. But the Japanese toilet, as far as Shelly is concerned, the Japanese toilet was another good place for her to put all her sort of aspirations. Like her dream of, you know, especially because Shelly is largely the one who's like picking up dog poop. Like for her, the dream makes sense that she's going to have this appliance that's going to essentially like you know service her she'll be in charge of this appliance that's going to clean her own butt you know it's like a, a very dog owner type fantasy <laughs> hope i'm not turning off your your like, no your, i think with no, my, I, I think my uh, my denizens of the woods will be thoroughly entertained by this this information that is totally out of their realm. Of <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You just Google Toto Toilet and the array of accessories that you can get with your toilet, with your remote are astonishing. Yeah. So there's another thing that Shelley's prone to do. She regularly blurs the boundaries of her life with like Dickensian literary notions. Mm, yeah, right. She's she's reluctantly left her like English major degree behind. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that and perhaps take us down some of those uh, literary blurring illusions. Well, one of the things, you know, that came to mind, not only because Shelley was an English major, but, you know, because of like, when I think of you know, poor people, like the sort of performance of poor people leads me to Dickens, like who's sort of the master of that type of, you know, theatrical, you know, poverty performance. And of course, a master storyteller. So Shelley just kind of has these sort of images in her head left over from her undergraduate degree and will frequently kind of try to shove like contemporary images into these like Dickensian boxes where they don't quite fit, you know, and it just like, in some ways, Oliver Twist was a type, almost like a meme. Like I wanted him to kind of pop up in the book, you know, as just like a note, almost just kind of recurring note because it was absurd. And um, in terms of dealing with the way that I was, you know, writing about capitalism and presenting this sort of machine. It was funny to me, you know, to have this notion of like the chimney sweep or, you know, Oliver or any of that to kind of just recur. And uh, it's performative and it's, it's absurd. So how have, how have you thought about the Dickensian connection, you know, conditions back in those days and how it relates to, let's say, present day New York City life? Mm. Well, 
When I think of Dickens, I think of just someone who is such a master at the heartfelt. You know, he, you know, when you think of the end of The Christmas Carol and, you know, Tiny Tim, I mean, the the kind of like the coming together of all the characters and the, you know, Scrooge seeing the ray of light. And I mean, it's comical. I think the what I'm writing about in The Means is more that the hard-heartedness that these characters have to take just in order to continue to do what they're doing. I mean, that provides a lot of what's absurd about the entire thing. Like, it became, you know, if you peel back, for instance, I mean, I didn't go, I mean, one could write a dissertation about, like, the actual facts of it, but you know, all the land in the Hamptons has been stolen basically from Native Americans as is, you know, so much, so much land. I don't even have to start, but like, it's all on stolen land anyway, like from the get-go, like that's where the ground is, you know? So if you start there, you know, if you acknowledge that and then, you know, then there's the tournament on top of the tournament on top of the tournament of bad behavior just in, you know, stealing, parceling off, selling, grift, all of it. It's it's just embedded in the whole thing. So, you know, when someone buys a home, a vacation home in the Hamptons, it's not common to say, well, have you considered the fact that, you know, your purchase is on stole? I mean, that's not something you say in polite company. That's not something that you say, but you could, you know what I mean? It's true. You could. It's part of it. And um, I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to confront someone and say, would you be willing to give up your vacation home back to its original owners or at least descendants of its original owners? Yeah, right. I mean, there's sort of a scene in the book where they're going to like a lobster restaurant that's on Native American land and they're sort of noting that the land doesn't really have a very good position. It's not actually have a water view. And they're talking about how the government, well, the government wouldn't give them a water view, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's horrible. Like, I mean, Dickens was forthright and, you know, brave in chronicling the conditions of the time in a way that is, I mean, certainly uh, something that I would aspire to. I mean, this is my first work of fiction. I learned a lot about structuring. That's what I can say. I tried to be, you know, clear-eyed and forthright in, in seeing. But ultimately, what I learned with fiction is the structure is God. You know, the structure is God. And that way, building the book was very much like building a house. I felt like an architect by the time I was done with this. So what are you going to write next? Oh, man. I don't know. I have some other things on the back burner, but uh, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. Not even to give us a hint of what some of them are? Well, maybe. I don't know. I heard this really good thing about mouse whispering, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But uh, no, I don't think that's the story for me to write. I'm leaning into buddy stories. I can say that. I want to explore buddy stories. And will it be fiction? Probably. Yeah. I like fiction. Fiction is fun. Yeah. I've finally found the freedom in it that I didn't understand for a long time. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I was wanting to ask you about the experience 
you know, writing fiction and how it differs from writing nonfiction for you and what you see as the possibilities and and the pros and cons of each of them and what you're resonating most with and or what you're you're thriving on most mm-hmm. these days, at least in your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I feel like I couldn't even consider fiction because it just wasn't something that interested me and I didn't understand, I just didn't understand, I didn't see a way in, you know, or I didn't see what the point was. I have always been really interested in the voice, like that's been my first, if I read something, it's the voice that brings me in and the voice that I respond to. So I feel like my nonfiction was really me developing my voice and finding you know, what was pleasurable, what worked for me, and also experimenting with structure, like all those things. And then with this project, you know, because of this baby step I took with Idiophone, like I could see a way forward with this project where fiction became a rich way to explore this thing that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And I really enjoyed it. And I'm like, oh, now I get it. Now <laughs> now I see what they were doing there. It was very, uh, it was useful also to just understand like the power of structure. Like structure and fiction is no joke. I don't know. At least that's what I learned with this one. Maybe by the next book, I'll have blasted that apart. But for me, I feel like that's what became really important for this was you can't move people forward without the structure it it has to be it has to be like a well-oiled machine and i learned a lot about writing that way and it was really useful so yeah that makes me think of how obviously different writers or different successful novelists have their own style their own structure Mm -hmm. i think all the great writers have their own but then again I'm not a writer, so. Yes, yes, Tonio. <laughs> yes, yes. So tell me about your thoughts on that. Oh, well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, because this was my first go at this, you know, it just became clear that it had to be something that I couldn't just intuit my way through, whereas Idiophone in particular was like writing something like, this is not going to make sense but it makes sense, which is that I felt like my face was really pressed against the ground, like in that I was looking at the word so microscopically, like each word could lead to another word, you know, in a way that was directing my course. I mean, I just had to be fully present for every word choice in that book in a way that was joyful and led me to, you know, what I think was the appropriate end. But this book, I feel like I had a much more traditional sense of audience. I had to be very mindful of my reader. I was very mindful of my reader in the sense of where I'm leading you, what I'm giving you, how we're going through this landscape. I mean, it just was, even though I I do feel that is a powerful voice in the book, it's still voice driven. The structure of it, I just didn't want to waste anyone's time. I really was conscious of wanting to just hurdle you along. And for that reason, Voltaire was really important to me. 
Candide was like my sacred text sort of for this book. I love Candide and I feel like Candide goes like 500 miles an hour and that's something I I wanted to imitate. I don't think I've read Candide, so tell me how that works for you. Because I consider you to kind of be like a a master of brevity, of saying so much in such a small amount of space because all of your books so far have been very small and yet full of so much. Well, thank you. I think you would really enjoy Candide. I mean, Candide is just, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. And um, it's short, it's absurd, it's wicked, it's hilarious, it's grim. I mean, for me, I can only read a book like that and just be like, oh, God, I should have done X, Y, Z. Like, you know, you just see all the things that you could have done. If there had been more blood, you know, more death, more plague, more more Trump, more everything, more COVID, more, 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 more. Like, Candide is just, oh, my God, it's so good. Just read Candide. Just get a <laughs> pre-order my book and then read Candide. But... Just in terms of what's possible, like, you know, in terms of what's possible in a novel for me, it was really like a sacred text. You know, it is, you can go a million miles an hour. You can have insane shit happening all the time. You can have characters who don't know jack shit and it can be fun and it can be, you know, you can show that the world is, you know, on fire and there can still be love and heart in the text it doesn't have to be grim you know the upshot of candide is like you know i'm misquoting it but like you tend to your garden that's like the world's on fire things are horrible and you tend to your garden you do the best you can with you know your little spot and i don't know if that wisdom comes out in the means but i think that's true you know you can only make your own choices and uh I'm not sure anyone in the means makes quite the right choices, except Twix. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't need to make any choices? Yeah, who eats the chocolate croissants and almost dies, spoiler alert. But like, you know, so it's hard being human. It's just hard being human. I hope my book is, you know, I hope people like feel the heart. That's really what I hope. Mm -hmm. Speaking of grim and humor, I think they, they go together very well. They feed off each other, at least humor. I think feeds very well off of the grim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and perhaps is really the only the only medicine to help us deal with the grim. Yeah, it has been for me. Me too. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Yep. And back in the days when I was reading satirical fiction, which I absolutely adored, I was also reading extremely grim stuff like. Jersey Kaczynski and, you know, just dark stuff at the same time when I was still quite young. So, uh, yeah, I think those polarities help create a, a real human being. Um, I'm your team, for sure. Well, do you yeah. have anything else that you'd like to share? No, I'm, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Tonio. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, this has been a wonderful conversation. I I always enjoy talking with you, and I look forward to your next project. Thank you. You know I'll keep you posted. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for that.
Awesome, thank you. So be well and enjoy the madness of living in New York City. Oh, I wanted to ask you, are you from New York? I'm not. My family is from Ohio, and I met my my husband at Ohio State. Okay, that gives me a, a little reference. Mm-hmm, yeah. I was born and raised in New York City, but then left mm-hmm. as soon as my father could get, get out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not really a New Yorker, but it's it's where I've lived. I think there are a lot of people who have that feeling, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those iconic places on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when I was living in southern Spain. Southern Spain is the poor part of the country. So New York City was pretty much the only thing anybody had ever heard of in America. Wow. So... People would ask, well, where are you from? New York City. And they go, oh, yes, of course. So anyway, thank you so much for joining me again. Yes, of course. Yeah, next time. I hope it won't be four years, but we'll see. Yeah, you, you have to work hard now. I know. Come on. You've, you've uh, charged me with, with this notion of writing a book, yes. which I, I still am skeptical about, but you have no excuses. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Fair enough. Unless, unless you want one. You oh. Can have- oh, no, that's good. You, you read me harsh truth. That's okay. That's why I come here. <laughs> okay. I'm happy to, to serve. <laughs> Thank you, Tonio. Amy Fusselman is the author of numerous books, as well as articles and essays that have appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, Art News, Artnet, and many other places. She teaches creative writing at NYU, and her new novel is Means, a kind of capitalist satire. Again, thank you, and be well. You too. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye. Bye. The Magical Mystery Tour is brought to you by Chiffy John. Mound, my rolling. Now, you all out there, give a listen to this. For a limited time only, you can order your own tailor-made Jiffy John outhouse. The outhouse that puts the fun back in your natural functions. Yes, a good outhouse is an asset to any family. So listen to these special features that tailor-made Jiffy John outhouse has to offer. Sturdy plywood construction, non-stoop walk-in door, Solid steel bolt latch, bronze coat hook, secret peekaboo peephole, exciting swirling wood grain and knot holes to study while sitting in there, traditional stars and moon ventilator cut away up there in the rooftop, and a year's supply of glossy, authentic Sears and Roebuck catalogs. And of course, most important of all, three convenient tailor-made Jiffy John outhouse holes. Yes, this popular family three-seater can be yours if you act without delay. But first, remember, you must specify your size and shape. This is important for the utmost in comfort and long hours of natural pleasure. So right now, sit yourself down with a pen and pencil and draw around your butt. Some of you may prefer to send an ink imprint, and that'll do just about as well. That's family three-seater tailor-made Jiffy John Outhouse, Crescent Moon, Tennessee. 
Like Jiffy John says, put that fun back in your natural country functions. The devil is waiting for me. Money means security. No money means terror. Oh, oh. This is Angel. This is Angel. We are the Android Sisters. Today's topic is money. Money is important. Everyone needs money. Have you been deprived of money? Do you suffer from money withdrawal? Do you need a money fix? Is your money fix not big enough? What if you lost your job? A job you can't stand. The job a machine could do. And do it better. What if you lost that? Then what? Uh-oh. No money means terror. Oh. Oh. Are you happy? Do you wonder why you are not happy? Do you live in a constant state of fear? Have they made you into a money junkie? Do you hate your job? Do you have a job to hate? Are you looking for a job? Are you looking for a job you will hate? A job that could be done by robots? Is this not a stupid way to live your life? But you need money. Money means security. No money means terror. Oh, oh. Are you happy? Do you wonder why you're not happy? Do you live in a constant state of fear? You know how easy it is to control someone in that state of mind. Do you know how many hours of the day you think about money? Do you ever think about how much you think about money? Aren't you sick of thinking about money? Money. Uh. Eh. Pooey. But money means security. No money means terror. Oh. Oh. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky tacky, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same. There's a green one, and a pink one, and a blue one, and a yellow one, and they're all made out of ticky tacky, and they all look just the same. on the golf course and drink their martinis dry and they all have pretty children and the children go to school and the children go to summer camp and then to the university where they are put in boxes and they come out all the same and the boys go into business and marry and raise a family and they all get put in boxes little boxes all the same there's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same
you get up and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business. And I have chosen you to preach this evangel. For all my free market healthcare, robbing stock, stealing retirement fund. <laughs> Shout to the homies, Carnegie, OG, Willie Randolph Hearst, Baruch, Rockefeller, the real Rockefeller, my main, Leona, bought a little Louis XIII, Scott Rothstein, Jack Abramoff, hold your head, my boy, yeah. Chop. Let's uh, get this money I spent my day pepping America overseas Pension for the workers, please Embezzlement, etiquette, private settlement I'm better with confederate rhetoric From my mansion in Connecticut Foreclosed with the at the tenements While I play golf with to get cheddar with New money buys brand new carrots My old money bunch of great grandparents You got grills in your mouth, I ain't mad at ya I own every gold mine in South Africa Thanks baby, you made me a billion Plus I own a building But each one of my children's children That's the shit snort in the whip Miss USA yeah, what? F the law, cause real jailers for suckers I go to country club prison, you dumb mother I am the one percent Yeah, you know my CEO corporate steez Please, overthrow governments overseas in a breeze Politicians in my pockets for a few hundred G's So if I'm ever in court, my assets are never free why y'all struggling to pay taxes? I'm getting my money the fastest. Memos and faxes, shredded up documents. Slush funds through the corrupt continents. But they don't want me indicted. Cause they don't want my dirty laundry aired when I fight it. Don't get my lawyers excited. Cause what good is a law if you can't rewrite it? I got CIA traders, dictators. So f y'all whistleblowers and haters. <laughs> I'll invest money from Al Qaeda. In the bank, 9 11 widows go too late to capitalism's who I pray to. To the world, money talks. So, what the f I need to say to you? Pay him the I pay him the leave. You know, my CEO, corporate steez greed. I treat countries like the IMF down on your knees. Real gangsters run the world. Get mad at me because I'm a tax free charity. 80% to the staff and company, and 20% to the homeless and hungry. The country gotta pay the Fed Reserve. Kick back to the banks. This haven't you learned? You protest cops and patrols on the street, but I bought city hall, so I own the police. Email, Facebook, and a shit you tweet on a phone company, so I heard you speaking. My suggestion is no correction, no elections, but no affection, no invention to benefit the world. A man will exist till I got the money in my hand. World Bank, interest rate, damn, on a spot. But I'm a gangster, you go take my money like it or not I got it's your country in my pocket mother you know my CEO Masonic Steve's cheese only little people pay all these taxes and fees since you were born we controlled what you watch and you read and pretty soon we're gonna own the f air that you breathe I take what I want I don't have to say please I convince you that it's good for you Leave you think presidents are the face of a nation? I put them all where they are. End of the conversation. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's have a warm National Press Club welcome for Mr. George Carlin. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. I can assure you, I am 
properly nervous, not because of simply my esteemed audience, but because this is a setting I'm not completely familiar with, and as we all know, anything new is to be feared and dreaded. <laughs> and just to relieve you of any outstanding anxieties, I can assure you that I'm not here to advance any political, social, or environmental cause. I am, in fact, blessedly agenda-free. For the record, the only worthy cause I have devoted time to is a little-known place that does wonderful work, St. Anthony's Home for the Visually Unpleasant. <laughs> it's run by the Little Sisters of the Heinous, and in fact, they operate a number of facilities, the Rochester Home for the Permanently Disheveled, the New England Haven for the Occasionally Coherent, and the Catholic shelter for those who up until a year ago seemed to be doing just fine. Uh, now, one of the things I wanted to do before I got too far along was to tell you a little more about myself in order to establish some common ground. And in the spirit of full disclosure, I would like to reveal to you my own remarkably tenuous connections to the press. More accurately, those of my family. In the 1930s and 1940s, my father sold newspaper advertising space and was consistently one of the top two or three space salesmen in the country. He began at the old Philadelphia American, moved to the Bulletin, and ended his career as the national advertising manager of the New York Sun. He also put in some time at the New York Post when it was still a broadsheet, or as my mother used to say, when it was a real newspaper, <laughs> not a commie rag. <laughs> As many of you no doubt know, long before the New York Post was a fascist rag, it was a commie rag. Prior to that, it had been an establishment rag. That's when my dad was there. My mother was manager of the Philadelphia Bulletin's New York office and later worked in the magazine division of the Hearst Corporation, first at Good Housekeeping and then at Cosmopolitan, once again when it was a real magazine. <laughs> Now, there is one more member of my family whose press connections I must tell you about, and this is the good one, my Aunt Aggie. This is the connection that gave me standing in the neighborhood, made me a big man on the playground. My Aunt Aggie also worked for the Hearst Corporation, but she worked for Puck the Comic Weekly, the publication that produced the Sunday Funnies every week. But here's the great thing about Aggie's job. Not only did she bring home the Funnies every week, she brought them home four weeks early. <laughs> Every week, I had the Sunday Funnies a month before the other kids. And I guess you can realize the power this gave me in the schoolyard. To be able to predict weeks ahead of time precisely the way Mandrake the Magician would escape from the lost cave, or to describe in advance the details of whatever well-deserved catastrophe was next in store for little orphan Annie. Doesn't sound like much today, but in the days before television, and when you're eight years old, it was power beyond belief. Of course, you had to be careful not to overdo the predictions, and you could never, ever tell the other kids about the great job your Aunt Aggie had. Now, having somewhat successfully established my press credentials, and because you and I have at least one thing in common, which is that all of us deal with language all the time, I thought it might be nice today for me to come to you with some of my language complaints. Certainly not to blame them on you, although, of course, you are implicated. <laughs> And not that you can help it. I mean, the problem is really with the people you cover. The politicians, the celebrities, and the lawyers. And although their level of insincerity is astonishing, 
It's still kind of fun to hear them talk. In particular, it's fun to listen to Washington talk. Whenever the issue of term limits comes up, I always tell people the only term limits I'm interested in would be to limit some of the terms used by politicians. They speak, of course, with great caution because they must take care not to actually say anything. Proof of this, according to their own words, is that they don't actually say things, they indicate them. As I indicated yesterday, and as the president indicated to me, but sometimes they don't indicate, they suggest. Let me suggest that as I indicated yesterday, I haven't determined that yet. See, they don't decide, they determine. If it's a really serious matter, they make a judgment. I haven't made a judgment on that yet. When the hearings are concluded, I will make a judgment, or I might make an assessment. I'm not sure. I haven't determined that yet. But when I do, I will advise you. They don't tell, they advise. I advised him that I had made a judgment. Thus far, he hasn't responded. They don't answer, they respond. He hasn't responded to my initiative. An initiative is an idea that isn't going anywhere. When he responds to my initiative, I will review his response, take a position, and make a recommendation. See, they don't read, they review, they don't have opinions, they take positions, and they don't give advice, they make recommendations. And so, at long last, after each has responded to the other's initiatives, and each has reviewed the other's responses, and everyone has taken a position, made a judgment, and offered a recommendation, now they have to do something. But that would be much too direct. So instead, they address the problem. We're addressing the problem and we'll soon be proceeding. That's a big activity here in Washington. Proceeding. They're always proceeding or moving forward. A lot of that goes on. Senator, have you solved that problem? Well, we're moving forward on that. And when they're not moving forward, they're moving something else forward, such as the process. We have to move the process forward so we can implement the provisions of the initiative in order to meet these challenges. No one has problems anymore. Challenges. That's why we need people who can make the tough decisions. Tough decisions like how much soft money can I expect to collect in exchange for my core values? <laughs> so that I can continue my work in government. Of course, no politician would admit to such a lowly station as working in government, serving the nation. I'm serving the nation. Another favorite distortion is public service. I'm in public service. I like America, don't you? The food is great, but the public service is terrible. Now, folks, a question for you. Do you think it's possible that one of these politicians whose judgment is so poor that he honestly thinks of himself as serving the nation might occasionally be expected to indulge in a little patriotism? Huh? What do you think? Well, of course, not only is it possible, it's inevitable, and that's when he's at his very best. That's when he trots out the really good stuff all across this great land of ours, the greatest nation on earth, the greatest nation in the history of the world. And in times of military crisis, you can be sure that someone in a suit in this town will eventually plant himself in front of a camera and carry on a great deal about the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Now, normally, during peacetime, the politicians will refer to people in the military as our young men and women stationed around the world. But in wartime, they quickly become our brave young fighting men and women stationed halfway around the world in places whose names they can't pronounce, wondering if they'll ever see their loved ones again. <laughs> for added emotional impact, sons and daughters can always be substituted for men and women. 
And so I think we can sum this up by saying that where the military is concerned, the extent of a politician's insincerity can be measured by how far around the world our soldiers are stationed and whether or not any of them can pronounce it. Incidentally, another way of expressing this sentiment is to say we're sending our young men and women to places the average American can't find on a map. I've always thought it was kind of funny and somewhat out of character for a politician to go out of his way to point out the low level of American intelligence when indeed his very job depends upon it. It would seem to fly in the face of that other rhetorical standby of theirs, the American people are a lot smarter than they're given credit for. This is said with a straight face, although it is obvious, of course, that the proposition is being stated precisely backwards. But, but the politicians, God bless them, or something like that, they're at their most entertaining when they're in trouble. When they're in trouble, their explanations usually begin simply with words like miscommunication. What did you do wrong, Senator? Well, it was a miscommunication. Or I was quoted out of context. Better yet, and more ironic, they twisted my words. Such a nice touch. A person who routinely spends his days torturing the language complains, they twisted my words. <laughs> then, as the controversy continues to heat up, he moves to his next level of complaint. The whole thing has been blown out of proportion. The whole, it's always the whole thing. Apparently, no one has ever claimed that only a small portion of something was blown out of proportion. Has to be the whole thing. That's because now he's feeling the heat. And so, as time passes and more evidence comes in, he suddenly changes directions and tells us, we're trying to get to the bottom of this. Now he's on the side of law and order. Jiu-jitsu, really. We're trying to get to the bottom of this so we can get the facts out to the American people. That's always a nice touch, American people. In fact, at this point, he might even say, I'm willing to trust in the fairness of the American people. And so, when finally all the facts come out and our subject seems quite guilty, he employs that sublime use of the passive voice, mistakes were made. <laughs> mistakes were made, don't look at me. Probably someone in my office. Things are moving faster now. Mistakes were made is rapidly overtaken by there is no evidence. No one has proven anything. Eventually I will be exonerated. I have faith in the American judicial system and that certain sign that things are closing in. Whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty? Whatever happened? Well, nah, yeah. Well, he's about to find out. And we know this must be true because the next thing we hear from him is, I just want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life. I just want to put this behind me. That's an expression we hear a lot these days in all walks of life. But usually the person in question has committed some unspeakable act. Yes, it's true, I strangled my wife, shot the triplets, set fire to the house, and sold my young son to an old man on the train. But now, I just want to put this thing behind me. That's the problem in this country. Too many people getting on with their lives. Personally, what I want to do is to put this, I want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life, thing behind me and get on with my life. I'll repeat that for you. Personally, I want to put... I want to put this, I want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life thing behind me and get on with my life. Now, continuing with more of these uh, 
more general language complaints and forgetting the Washington angle for the moment, I'd like to mention America's love affair with euphemisms and euphemistic language. I think Americans have some difficulty dealing with reality and have invented a kind of soft language to protect themselves. And this tendency to euphemize, if that's a, a verb, uh, increases, it, it seems, with every generation. It's a language that takes the life out of life. And it does keep getting worse over time. I'll give you an example. Sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. <laughs> I was not consulted on this. It just happened. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.